Welcome to the realm of Monistic. Many years ago, six powerful nations entered into a peace treaty, one that outlined their shared responsibilities in protecting and sharing the land where they all lived, their trade agreements, and how to air grievances in order to prevent war. These nations, the Cree, Métis, Dene, Soto, Stony, and Blackfoot, are each their own sovereign nations with their own laws, governances, and cultural practices. Under this treaty, they all live harmoniously with one another. Though their teachings and dedication to this treaty guides them all, there is a brutal and harrowing history of war between the nations before the peace treaty was created that is remembered amongst many. Some of them harbor years-long ancestral beef in their blood, memories of when the Blackfoot killed thousands of Cree people in the River Wars, and when the Dene withheld medicine from their stony and Soto rivals when the Great Frost swept through Monistic. This peace treaty is renewed annually during a four-day ceremony in Amiskwichi, Wiskaigan, a canopy town and trading site used by all six nations. Amiskwichi, Wiskaigan is a big, sprawling city built on top of giant poplar, birch, fir, and pine trees. Each house, gathering place, and trading post is connected by bridges built through druid craft and magic to intertwine with the forest itself. Each house, gathering place, and trading post is connected by bridges built through druid craft and magic to interweave with the forest itself. This city was built this way to preserve the sprawling grasslands below with minimal interference from the two-leggeds who seek to inhabit it. Snaking underneath their city is the Kasaskiwani Sipi, the river that many of these nations use to travel and fish. Living in the grasslands all around the canopy town are giant bison, werewolves, ghost bears, bighorn dragons, and many other magical creatures. This year's peace treaty ceremony has just concluded, and three unsuspecting Cree elves, distantly related cousins, have been summoned to their Cookham's treehouse. But it's not for tea and gossip. They have no idea that their lives are about to change forever. I'm your dungeon master, Ben Johns, and this is Cree and D, episode Payak. Now, let's meet our party. Hi, I'm Auntie Darlene, a swampy Korean Métis cleric elf of the nature domain. I'm a kombucha brewing vegetarian with a gluten intolerance and an animal familiar, an old grang pug named Butterball who wears tiny moccasins on his little paws and a leather carry pack. As a cleric, I'm imbued with divine magic, praying to sacred deities associated with ancestral fishing spots, trap lines, and groves. I have a deep desire to hunt any evil monsters who despoil the grasslands, and I bless harvests of those who are good to their family and the land. I am seven feet tall, and my hair is long and dark. Moss, twigs, and mushrooms sometimes get stuck in my locks until I brush them loose at night. I dress in sun-yellow, weather-resistant robes with a red sash tied around my waist. Slip-on sandals, a choker, and leaf earrings complete my practical and fashionable outfit for traversing the lands and visiting sacred deities. I also carry an ornately carved walking stick, which is a weapon, but also imbued with magical powers. I'm Auntie Vera a Woods Cree barbarian elf, Path of the Ancestral Guardian. 
I'm an emotional, deeply in my feelings youth who is always listening to sad music and starting fights, particularly if a person I encounter appears violent, untrustworthy, or threatening to my kin. As a path of the ancestral guardian barbarian, I have the power to rage and contact ancestors and spirits in other realms for aid. The ancestor I usually call forward to guide and help is the spirit of my Mushum Don Smith, who has passed on to the ancestral realm. I have syllabic tattoos on my face, arms, and legs that act as different protection markings I receive from guardian elders. I stand at an average height for an elf, 6'6 and growing. My best friend and best weapon is a huge silver axe named Musqua. I wear spiked metal shoulder armor over top of my favorite band t-shirt, the Screaming Crees, and a white fur belt over my black skinny jeans. My hair is shorn short on the sides and spiked into a mohawk in the middle. And I'm Auntie Mac, a Plains Cree rogue elf, arcane trickster. I'm smart-mouthed and cunning, and I love to gamble and tease. I have enhanced my fine-honed skills of stealth and agility with magic, learning tricks of enchantment and illusion, which I use to entertain my young nibblings. I typically prioritize cunning over brute strength, and I try to rely on deception to solve problems instead of fighting. I have two discreet daggers tucked into my belt next to my small pouches holding different powdered magics. I'm 6'11 and have my long hair pulled back tightly into a French braid. I wear tight-fitting moose-hide armor and thigh-high mucklucks that have secret pockets inside them. A dark, green robe is pulled across my back, held in place by a pin. After receiving these summons by your Cookham Cardinal, a Cree sorcerer elf with immense power they draw upon within their bloodline, you arrive outside the treehouse at the same time. The treehouse is small, hut-like structure formed around a giant pine tree and made from mud, bark, and grass. It sits on the edge of a hanging bridge, and past it you see miles and miles of grasslands until the horizon curves into the distance. Below the bridge, you can barely see the ground hundreds of feet down through the branches and leaves. You are all very familiar with a Miss Wichi Wiskaigan and with Cookham's Treehouse. Your families are all traders and come through the canopy town each year. Growing up, you three were inseparable whenever your families would meet here usually during ceremonies and big family gatherings. Darlene and Mac would babysit Vera, as they are a few years older, and Cookham was a great teacher and mentor to you all. Once Vera's ancestral connection began, they were taken away to study their magic under ancestral barbarian elders. Around this time, Darlene's partner got sick with an ancient illness and they had to leave to take care of them. And Mac's parents died in a tragic adventuring accident which resulted in them going to live with other family members. Eventually, you all slowly drew apart. This is the first time you're seeing each other in a very long time, and you are definitely surprised. Vera? Mac? I put down Butterball, who was strapped into a baby Bjorn on my stomach while we walked, and he immediately snorts his way over to Vera and Mac and starts sniffing their feet. Holy shit, I didn't know you were both here. I run over and give them both a huge hug. I sidestep Butterball, since he kind of looks like he's just finding a place to pee, and hug Darlene. Tanse, Darlene. Butterball's looking a little worse for wear. You, of course, haven't aged a day since I last saw you. Damn, when was that? 
It feels like a lifetime ago. Vera was just a kid, right, Vera? What are you now, 80? I bend down to pet Butterball, but it's actually just a move to flex my muscles so the aunties can see how swole I've gotten. A hundred, actually. But the elders say I act more like I'm 150, 200. Creator, what I wouldn't give to be 150 again. Wait, did Cookum call you both here too? Yeah. Did we do something? From inside, you all hear Cookum call out, I'm older than all of you, but these ears are still sharp and these walls are thin. Get inside. Hola. We haul ass inside. I am not about to keep Cookum waiting. As you all step into Cookum's treehouse, you are immediately reminded of your childhood. It looks very similar to how you remember when you were kids, except for a few changes. As usual, the place is hazy from smudge, but the haze is heavy, hovering just above the floor. A giant oak table, rooted up from the ground, sits in the middle of the room. The walls are decorated in mementos from Cookham's past adventures, a giant bear skull, parchment, maps of all kinds. To the side of the room, shelves are full of potions and different alchemicals. A bubbling stew cooks in the fireplace. Cookham Cardinal is very short for an elf. You can usually tell an elf's age by how tall they are, but Cookham is an exception to this rule. They have thick, long, white hair, and you can see twigs, leaves, and pine cones poking through them, kind of like Darlene's, except you can tell Cookham doesn't comb them out. At one point, you spot a squirrel pop its head out of their hair and then duck back into the tendrils. Cookham holds a staff, bigger and more ornate than Darlene's, but you can tell Darlene modeled their staff after Cookham's. They wear a practical, minimalist cloak adorned with beadwork. When they walk towards you, the plants that cover their treehouse perk up as if drinking from the life force Cookham gives off. It's good to know that you didn't get lost anywhere here, but you damn well took your time. I sent out a mushroom call an hour ago. You all know that mushrooms are used in Amiskwachi, Wiskayagin, and across the land for communication. Oyster mushrooms, which you see by Cookham's door, can transfer messages through their mycelium network to other oyster mushrooms, like a phone call through the ground. I was actually here early. These ones helped me out. I roll my eyes at Mac. Hardly. Butterball had to pee. I pet Butterball, who I've clipped back in his baby Bjorn on my stomach. You know, with a little bit of magic, I could cover all his gray hairs. He'd be looking like a young familiar again in no time. There's nothing wrong with his gray hairs. If you should be worried about anyone's appearance, it should be your own. I didn't want to say anything, but- Enough! The staff is gone! As Cookham says this, the big, ornate staff they were holding poofs and fluttering of birds emanate from where it once was. Now their hands hold nothing. I hold my own staff a little tighter. What do you mean it's gone? Cookham suddenly looks very sad and gestures for you all to sit around the oak table. Once you take your seats, they continue. Um, my staff was stolen late last night at the conclusion of the peace treaty ceremony. But how is that possible? How did someone take it from you? It, it wasn't with me when it was stolen. As you know, during the ceremony, it's protocol for all nations to put our weapons and arms into the great hollow vault. I put my staff there as I have done every year since the creation of this treaty. And then when I went to retrieve it, it, it was gone. I've been casting minor illusion to make it seem like I still have it to not cause alarm. 
Why wouldn't you want to cause an alarm? That staff is one of the most powerful artifacts in all of Monistic. Like Darlene did with their weapon, I grab hold of Musqua, which is strapped to my back. As I do, blood rushes to my face. Who was it? I'll go to them immediately. Cookham regards each of you calmly in turn and puts hand on Vera's arm. The only people that had access to it were visiting nations, and I don't want to compromise our tenuous peace by putting accusations out before I know more. I don't understand. Why didn't Gungar the Holder see it happen? Isn't he the sworn protector of the vault and everything inside? You've been with the Guardian Elders too long. Don't you remember? The Great Hollow Vault system is based on a system of trust. To place or retrieve an item, Gungar the Holder opens the vault, but the person enters alone, placing their items in their designated place, or taking out items that belong to them. It's a little different for ceremonies. All weapons, both magical and non-magical, are placed in there beforehand. When the ceremony is complete, everyone who placed an item in the vault then goes in to retrieve it. While the ceremony is happening, no other traitor or person is allowed in or out of the vault. I mean, at least, that's how it all used to be. Cookham nods. That's right, my grandchild. This protocol has not changed. I went in after the peace treaty was complete. When I went to the magical items area where I placed my staff four days earlier, it was, it was gone. Why are you telling us this? You are the only people that know other than me. I know you have big and busy lives now. So busy you can't even visit your cookum, but, but I called you all here because I trust you with this secret. I need your help to figure it out. I feel incredible pride and I swell up a bit. Us? Yes, you. Uh, here's what I need you to do. Go to the Great Hollow Vault and speak to Gungar the Holder. Find out if anything has gone wrong with the Great Hollow Vault recently, or if it's possible someone else entered it while we were in ceremony. He'll remember you. You met a few times when you were little ones. I even took you inside the vault once. Though, Vera, I think you were only a baby then. I would speak with him myself, but if I start asking questions, he'll know something happened and will prod more or even ring the alarm. Listen, this is incredibly important. Be discreet. Keep this secret. Talk to Gungar and do not draw attention to yourselves. You all make your way to the Great Hollow Vault at the center of town. In fact, the Great Hollow Vault is considered the heart of Amiskwichiwa Skyagen, as everything else in this town was built around it. To get there, you have to go higher into the canopies using highly sophisticated magical rope systems. These ropes connect from tree branches to bridges, and when you tug on them, they lead you through the air to different areas of the town. As you fly through the town on these ropes, you can see just how busy the place is. It's absolutely bustling with elves and traders, the place loud with bartering and full of life. You arrive at the far end of a rope bridge. Across from you is Gungar's post, atop a large turkey tail mushroom that grows out from the side of the great hollow vault. A large circular door in the trunk and a big stone seat next to the door are the only things of note. What's the big deal with this tree anyways? Yeah, it's big, but why are we trusting it enough to put our most sacred items in it? Oh, it's more than just a big tree. This is a five million year old bur oak and is as big inside as the town built around it. Centuries ago, it was struck by lightning, hollowing out the middle with lightning fire. The bark withheld though, and was strengthened by the magic of the sky. It became a wondrous new material Ministic had never previously known. 
Now, there is no known material that can break through this bark. Okay, it's a big and magical tree. What's the point of Gungar, then? Well, there needs to be a way in and out of the vault, right? The hole that was created by the lightning strike scabbed and grew over. But there was also a cavity in the tree, likely made by an animal before the tree was struck. Elder wizards forged the door into the cavity before it could grow over, too. It's made from elven steel and sealed by magic. Only Gungar and his key can open it. As you're all talking, you suddenly see Gungar walk to his stone chair from his rounds. Gungar is an eight-foot-tall bear of a man with green hair and a long green beard that stretches down to his navel. With his broad shoulders and iron oak armor, he looks more like the tree he guards than a person. His sword, the key, is strapped to his back. It's a two-handed greatsword about as big as Gungar himself. It's bright blue, almost neon, and shines in its sheath. Even from where you're standing, you feel the magic of it. I turn to Vera and Darlene and put up my hand. Follow my lead. I start walking towards Gungar. You all stride forward on the rope bridge, Mac in front of you, and you all hear Gungar's booming voice. Who approaches the vault of the... Oh, hey! Is that Mac, Vera, Darlene? I haven't seen you in ages. Gungar stands up and steps forward, making a boom so loud it shakes the trees. He walks over and stands over top of Mac like a mountain. As you look up, all you see is the beaming face of Gungar as he opens his arms wide for a hug. Before Mac can say anything, I rush forward for a hug, pushing Mac and Vera into it as well. Gungar, it's so good to see you. How are you? Gungar squeezes them all easily in his giant arms. It's good to see you too. I'm as well as ever. How's your cookum after the treaty ceremony? I know those things can be draining. They're looking as handsome as ever, though, but don't tell them I said that. I uncomfortably move out of the bear hug and straighten out my hide. <clears throat> they're well, they're well. Actually, the reason why we're here is because we have a couple of questions about the Great Hollow Vault. How it's able to keep people out, exactly, and if it's ever been breached. You all see Gungar's jovial, light mood shift, and he becomes serious again. He lets you go from the hug and takes a step back. The vault. Why do you have such questions? I'm going to pull a bottle of homebrewed kombucha out of my cloak and step forward. Oh, it's for research. It's why we're all back together, actually. Between the three of us, we've covered almost all the grounds in Ministic, studying woods, metals, and magical substances, helping some elders, you know, figuring out the best materials for weapons and tools. As I talk, I usher Gungar and the others to sit around Gungar's stone chair. Once everyone is seated, I rustle around in my cloak and pull out four cups of various sizes. I hand one out to each of them and start pouring some kombucha. Our apologies for jumping right in. Here, have some of my kombucha. It's wapanwask. Good for the heart. Extra fermented. So it has a little kick. I bring a cup of kombucha up to Butterball's face and he laps it up. Gungar settles into his chair and looks more relaxed again. Oh, Yarrow is my favorite. Thank you, Auntie. Research, you say? Oh, knowledge keepers like your parents, Mac. The research they used to do, still used today. Absolutely invaluable and loved, of course. They would be so proud. <clears throat> yeah, this kombucha's really good, Darlene. 
You've gotten so much better. Glad to see the bottles aren't exploding anymore, too. You must have perfected your recipe. I sniff at the drink and then put it down without drinking it. <sighs> okay, enough with the pleasantries. Look, Gungar, just tell us if there's anything that could possibly get through this old bark. I eye Vera and try to shake my head subtly at them. Gungar pauses mid-sip, looking between each of you. You think he's about to get serious again, and you feel the air tense. But then... <laughs> oh, Vera Stone, not even years can change you. You've always been like this, you know, even as a little one. As sharp and as fiery as the sun. What do you call the sun in Cree? Peasum? You should be called Peasum Vera. Aw, little Peasum Vera. That's cute. I poke at Vera. I glare at Mac and bat away their hand. What about the door? I know it's elven steel, but it's not completely indestructible. I mean, it's been done before. Gungar strokes his long green beard before taking another sip of kombucha. He then turns and gestures to the door. Up close, you can all see how big this door actually is. It's huge, about double the size of Gungar, and only has one latch and no windows. There's a slit in the middle of it that glows blue, the same color as Gungar's sword. You also see, as Gungar gestures, that there are symbols etched into the metal. Syllabics are engraved all around the edge of it. You're correct. Elven steel alone isn't indestructible. Those syllabic runes are magic, keeping the vault closed and safe. You know how that works, Peace and Vera. Gungar eyes the syllabic tattoos across Vera's face and arms. The magic only allows this key, he reaches back and affectionately taps the sword, to open it. And if elven steel and syllabic magic isn't enough, it also has me watching over the opening. And my eyes are in the roots. My ears are in the leaves. I am one with the wind and patient as a mountain. I never, ever leave my watch. And I see everything. And nothing has ever, ever gotten past me. <laughs> but why are you all asking about the door? I, I thought your research was about the, the tree bark. Uh, well, yeah, but... Elven steel is also an interesting substance, and I had no idea about the syllabic ruins, which adds an interesting element to it. I wonder if we should include a subset of research about magics that enhance a substance. I turn to Darlene and Vera and try to put on a look of deep interest in this. As Mac is speaking, I unstrap Butterball from his Bjorn and let him down. He promptly, as if knowing what to do, goes and pees on the other side of Gungar's chair. Butterball, stop that. I step between everyone to chase the dog, breaking up the moment. I gather Butterball and his Bjorn again. So sorry about that. Butterball is still learning his manners. Anyways, thank you so much for answering our questions. You have been invaluable to this research. Expect a copy of our dissertation in your tree mail. Keep the rest of this bottle of booch. Here's to your gut health. We best get going. Gungar nods. Okay then, you three. It was wonderful to see you again. Give my love to Cookum. I usher Vera and Mac back down the bridge until we're out of earshot of Gungar. 
Shit, that was close. Let's get out of here. But we didn't even figure anything out. We did what Cookham asked of us. We spoke to Gungar and got all the information we're going to get. We didn't even ask about if anyone went in during the ceremony. We can't leave without finding out more. Vera, don't be a child. As Darlene says this, my face falls and then hardens. I look between Darlene and Mac and am visibly angry. A child? Cookum tasked us with finding out what happened here. And you are ready to give up the moment we come across an obstacle. Why did they even send you? Not waiting for a response from either of them, I take off. In a second, I grab a rope from one of the nearby trees and tug, letting the rope system swallow me into the branches. Well, that went well. Shit. Well, I didn't mean for that to happen. But come on, what were we supposed to do? Force Gungar to let us into the vault? He was already getting suspicious. Let's get back to Cookums and tell them what we found. I put a hand on Darlene's shoulder, stopping them from moving forward. We should go get Vera. (sighs) We don't even know where they went. I look at Darlene knowingly. You know exactly where they are. I nod. Okay, fine. Let's go. Together, we grab a rope that will lead us up into the very top of the trees. You both hold tight onto a nearby rope, which swings you up and out of the bustling town. This rope brings you to the top of the trees. There are leaves and needles so thick that you can walk along the top of them easily. The canopy is like the top of an umbrella covering the town, and you can see beyond it onto the plains and grasslands that stretch for miles. It's beautiful up here, serene, but neither of you have been up here since you were younger. It's where you would always take Vera when you would babysit them, regaling them with stories of your own adventures and things you've done since you last saw each other. Here, you see Vera sitting on top of the canopy, looking out into the plains. You walk over and sit on either side of them, but they keep looking out into the distance. I put my arm across Vera's shoulders. I didn't mean what I said, Vera. I'm sorry. I know you were just trying to help. I sigh and look at them both. You don't understand. You both have lived so much of your life already, and everyone knows how important you two are to the family and the community. I don't have that. I've been training with the ancestral elders, but I haven't had adventures yet. I haven't done anything. And all I hear is how important the youth are, how necessary we are to our communities. But I'm still treated like a child. Vera, you are important. I think maybe it's just hard for us to let go of how we once knew you, which was as a child who needed taken care of. Even as older ones make mistakes, we still have a lot of learning to do too. As I lean further into holding Vera, Butterball licks Vera's face in sweet affection. As you're all sharing this beautiful moment, the wind picks up slightly, tossing your hair and bringing with it the sweet smell of grass and pine. But then, Mac, you look over and see something on the canopy, about 20 feet away from you, that looks very strange. It's a small, thin trail of dead leaves, 
Almost like acid, this trail has cut a hole through the heavy canopy, and a red goo-like residue is left in its wake. I point to this unusual trail. Uh, aunties, what the hell is that? You all look over and see the trail of dead leaves and red substance Max pointing out. Everything about my demeanor instantly changes. So far today, I have been pretty calm, and have taken everything in stride, even Cookham's task. Now, I feel my face flush and my eyes narrow, and I immediately rush over to this trail for a closer look. I take out a vial and metal tweezers, pluck up some of the red substance, and tap it into a vial. I cork it and put it back in my cloak. Butterball starts to growl angrily and bark at the red substance. I turn to Mac and Vera. This is something called the death fungus. It has been spotted all over Ministic, increasingly over the past few years, though we don't know where it originated. I have walked through entirely wiped out sacred groves that this fungus has eaten through before we had a chance to get rid of it. Prayer sites and entire ecosystems were destroyed. It eats through everything, wood, metal, earth, at incredible speed. We had to enchant these vials with powerful magic, and even then it doesn't hold for too long. It's been found in Amiskowatsiwaska again a few times, but the town brought in druids to contain it so the fungus didn't overrun and destroy anything. As you could imagine, for a town built into trees, this fungus could single-handedly collapse it. I get up and inspect the trail with Darlene. I've heard about this fungus before, but I've never seen it. It's eaten right through the canopy. I point to where the trail continues to snake off across the canopy. Well, let's see where it leads. You all follow this trail of red fungus and dead leaves as it leads further to the middle of the canopy. After about five minutes, the trail forms into a big circular hole as wide as your bodies. When you look down into this hole, you see it leads directly to the top of the Great Hollow Vault. The trail of red fungus continues down from this hole and across the bark of the giant bur oak. You can't see exactly where it leads though, as the trail veers off and there are branches in the way of your view. My face goes completely white as all the blood drains from it. Shit! 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 Oh shit! Creator! Fuck! What? Oh, fuck no. Oh, no. Oh, shit. Fuck to guy. It's okay, Auntie. Didn't you say they've gotten druids to come to the town before to remove and control the fungus? We'll just get them to help again. I turn to both of them, my face still white. You don't understand. This fungus is on the Great Hollow Vault. You all take a closer look and see that the fungus has indeed left not just a trail of fungus, but it has eaten through enough of the bark to leave a very distinct divot in its wake. It's not eaten through entirely, but the divot looks almost like a burn mark. We've ran tests. We've monitored the death fungus for years. It has never, ever been able to affect the bark of the Great Hollow Vault. We thought the lightning magic kept it protected. Okay, so what does this mean? It means the vault and everything inside of it are vulnerable. Shit, that is bad. We should go back and tell Cookham. I look at Mac. <sighs> should we? I catch Darlene's eye and give them a smirk. Hell yeah. 
I look between them. What? We've come this far. We might as well see it through. Let's follow it. Really? You want an adventure, Peace and Vera. This is it. Darlene, as you look down to this hole again, you see a crow's nest about 10 feet along the side of the tree trunk. In the nest, a crow is preening. I cast speak with animals on the crow. The crow looks up at you. Hey there, Ahasu. How you doing, little buddy? What are you Nehiawak doing creeping around my nest? That fungus next to you? When did it grow there? <laughs> it didn't grow here. I look confused, but I try again. That fungus next to you? When did it appear there? It didn't appear here neither. I roll my eyes and turn to Vera and Mac, speaking in common again. Okay, this crow is giving us nothing. I asked when the fungus grew, and they said the fungus didn't grow there. I don't know why I tried. Vera, remember this. Crows will never give us a straight answer to anything. Hmm. Oh, ask the crow if a creature of some kind created the fungus. Okay. I turn back to the crow and switch back to speaking in its language. Tanse again, Ahasu. Was it a creature that made this fungus? Oh, now that's the right question. Why, yes, it was indeed a creature that made this here fungus. Who was it? What kind of creature? I don't rightly know. I couldn't see them. I could only sense them there. Uh, They came through a couple nights ago, in the pitch dark, on the other side of my nest. They've dug a hole right through the bark. Quite rude, if you ask me. Now I'm going to have to move. Real estate in this tree is ridiculous. Hi, hi. I turn to Vera and Darlene and switch back to Common. Of course, it's only a rogue who understands a damn crow. You were right, Mac. It was a creature who made the fungus a couple nights ago. Crows can't see well at night, though, so they didn't get a good look at who did it. They said there's a hole dug through the bark on the other side of their nest. So, if we can get over there somehow, we can inspect it. I pull out my grappling hook and throw it, hooking it onto a branch close to the nest. Hold on, aunties. As you swing by the crow on the grappling hook, they wave with their wings. You all have yourself a good day now. But watch your feet and keep your hands in your pockets. Some people might think you're up to no good. You land securely in place on the branch. From here, you see the other side of the tree trunk that you couldn't see from the canopy. The red fungus continues to trail over this way, just as the crow said, and then converge like it did on top of the canopy into a big hole in the bark. This is no longer a divot. The bark has been burned through completely. The hole that's left leads into a dark opening in the tree. Dear creator. At least the crow wasn't jerking us around about this. In all my years of studying this fungus, I've never seen it do this. One of the most dangerous things about the fungus is that it's erratic. It spreads quickly and everywhere. But the trail, these holes, 
They're intentional. Someone went through a lot of trouble to get into the vault. Are... are we going in? I nod. We've made it this far. Well, I've never said no to a hole. I smile, wink, and crawl in headfirst. You crawl in one by one. This bark is thick, so it takes about five minutes until finally you make it to the inside of the vault. Immediately, you're hit with an incredible awe. From the outside, you can imagine the size of the place, but actually seeing it is more than you imagined. Darlene and Mac, you have a vague memory of when Cookham brought you here when you were younger, but from this high up vantage point, you get a really good look all around. The vault is lit by hundreds of giant turkey tail mushrooms that, like Gungar's post on the outside of the tree, grow like platforms right from the wall. It's quite warm here, and the glow from the mushroom gives the place a cozy feeling. It's intimate, despite its size. It smells like fresh-cut oak and smoked hide, and there's a clear sense of power emanating from the back of the vault, in an area where you can see the magical items being kept. In fact, there are very distinct areas for particular goods. There's a place for keeping fish, the Blackfoot Trader section, a place for beadwork and ornate clothing for the Métis traders, a section for fur and game meat for the Cree traders, a section for herbs and alchemicals and medicines for the Dene traders, a section for various magical items like precious gems and rocks for the Stony traders. There's an armory section for the Soto traders. There's also another area specifically for magical items, used by everyone, and also various smaller areas for other visiting nations. You also see the trail of red fungus lead from the hole down the inside of the tree to, you assume, the ground. I find the closest turkey tail mushroom to the hole and jump to it. I look back at the antis. Let's play follow the rogue. More like race the rogue. I bet I'll get down faster. I jump to the mushroom after Mac and try to go faster than them. If you two fall, I'm not wasting any spells healing you. You can suffer your own consequences. I slowly start to follow after them, making sure Butterball is safe and is Bjorn. You all jump from mushroom to mushroom all the way down to the ground. As you make your way down, Darlene, you keep your eyes on the death fungus trail. As soon as you hit the ground, all signs of it are gone. Damn it! The trail disappeared! Keep your eyes peeled, everyone. Be careful not to touch anything. Let's do a quick search for more of the fungus, and then get out of here. Let's go to the back where the magical items section is. That's where Cookham said they put their staff. You all head over to the magical item section on the other side of this vault. As you walk across the grounds, an eerie quiet settles around you. You know the magical item area immediately. The power you felt emanating from the space where you first crawled in gets stronger the closer you get. Now here, a bunch of magical items of all kinds center in a ring. I stare in amazement. I've seen a lot of cool things in my time, aunties, but I've never seen so many powerful items all in one spot. I walk around the perimeter of the magical items and peer in, looking for Cookham staff or any sign of a disturbance. It's... it's... Uh, amazing. As you trace the border of this area, 
you see at the corner of your eye traces of the red fungus again. It's on the far side of the magical items, almost in the shadows. I gesture to it. Hey, aunties, the fungus. You all converge around this reappeared fungus. It appears in a trail again, just like you've seen since you started following it. But then after a couple of feet, it starts to peter out and, in its place, footprints appear on the ground. Like burnt holes, but in the distinct shape of feet. There are only three, and then they disappear. Next to the footprints, there's a fish hook with feathers and an elaborate beaded necklace. What are these doing all the way over here? That's definitely a Blackfoot fishing hook. And I'd know that Mainty beadwork design anywhere. These should be in completely different areas. I bend over to inspect the fungus footprints. And this fungus, what? Suddenly grew feet? This is a clue! We need to show Cookum. I quickly pick up the necklace and fishing hook. No, Vera, don't touch! As you picked up those items, you felt a small jolt in both your hands, like an electrical shock. Then, underneath you, the ground starts to shake. Damn it, Vera! I told you not to touch anything! You triggered the alarm! The place shudders like it's been hit by an earthquake. You all fall to the ground, unable to keep your feet under you. The items that were separated in different sections of the vault spill out all around you, crashing together as the ground starts to split. You think, for a second, that you're about to get swallowed up in the cracking ground. But the items start to smash and form together. Furs, meat, clothes, and weapons mash into one another, clumping together like mud. They grow outward, sticking to each other more and more, until, to your horror, they create the unmistakable shape of arms, legs, and shoulders. Before your eyes, three clay golems rise up from the ground. I look to Darlene and Mac. Uh, sorry? I go into a rage. My mohawk turns into steel, and the tattoos on my body light up into a golden glow. In front of me, a light appears, silhouetting a shadow. The shadow takes solid form, and my musham, Don Smith, steps forward as a golden ghost, conjured from the ancestral plane. Musham Don wears a cowboy hat, a red button-up shirt, a bolo tie made from bones and black jeans. He looks out lazily at the golems and then back to me and gives a wry smile. Across his back, he also has Musqua strapped to him, as this is what he passed down to me when he entered the ancestral plane. Tonsei, my grandchild. Who are we fucking up today? Hi, Musham. We're gonna take out these ugly guys in front of us. Ready? I swing my axe at the golem closest to me. Your axe connects. Hits the golem right in its stomach. As you go to pull it out, to ready yourself for another strike, you feel your weapon stick. You try to pull it out, but only wedges deeper. Clay starts to form around the sides of Musqua, sucking it in. The golem smirks and brings its fist down. Before it connects, though, there's a flash of gold as Musum Don uses his ancestral protector shield on Vera. Thanks, Musham. The second clay golem rushes up to Vera and smashes them in the gut. The third clay golem starts to lumber towards Mac and Darlene. 
I dig in one of the pouches on my side and come out with a pinch of tobacco. I throw it above my head and smoke envelops me. I cast invisibility on myself. Nomoya Nokwan. I unhook Butterball from his Bjorn and set him on the ground. He growls and runs towards the clay golem coming forward. As he moves, in a fit of slobber and foam, he transforms into a giant werepug, quadruple the size that he was. He runs up and clamps on the clay golem's leg. I cast seaweed pack splash on them. A spray of acid splashes across the clay golem's face and chest. Go back into the ground, you pricks. Vera's right, you are ugly. The clay golem looks up at you as acid sizzles across his face and chest, but it's just smiles, appearing unharmed. He picks up Butterball, who tears a chunk out of the golem's leg as he's lifted off the ground, and throws him across the vault into a heap of items behind you. No, Butterball! The golem laughs and lunges at a distracted Darlene. Clay forms around your legs, grappling you as you fall to the ground. I search my mind and remember that only magical weapons will harm clay golems. I use a throne voice so no one knows where I am. Acid and regular weapons aren't going to do anything. You have to use some kind of magical weapon against them. The two golems on Vera keep smashing into them with their fists as they refuse to let go of their axe. Flashes of gold light up the vault as Muslims shield some blows, but many of them land. Vera, catch. I throw my magical staff to Vera. I catch Darlene's staff with one hand and swing at the neck of the golem, sucking in my axe. The staff connects, slicing through the golem's neck like butter. Its head flies into the air and lands on the ground with a thud. The clay shrinks away from your axe and the rest of its body falls to the ground. <laughs> Good hit, my grandchild. That's one way to get ahead. I roll my eyes and smile at Mushum's pun. I restrap Musqua back to the leather holster on my back. The second clay golem that was pummeling you stumbles back as it sees you behead his friend. I appear behind the golem grappling Darlene. Using one of my magical knives, I stab it in its back. Caught by surprise, the clay golem cries out and takes a lot of damage. It also stumbles back, letting go of Darlene. Without even getting up, I cast Healing Word on Vera. Kikeo! A magical breath of air shoots out and towards Vera, healing some of the damage from the two clay golems. The golems start to make noises to one another, like they're talking. The one closest to Vera and the one closest to Darlene, instead of attacking again, each turn away and start to run towards one another. In three quick strides, they crash into each other. Bits of armor and clay go flying. You each look as they stumble back and then charge again, smashing into each other again and again. You think at first they're fighting, but then you see as they hit each other, they actually start to form together. Their clay hands form into their partner's clay bodies, and one of their torsos gets swallowed into the others until, before your eyes, they clump together and become one huge, monstrous clay golem. It stares at you with its four eyes and yells, You've got to be joking. I take a breath and press my palm into the dirt. I cast Spike Opigiwin. In a circle all around this giant golem, a bunch of spikes shoot up from the ground. Let's see you get through that. The giant clay golem looks around as these spikes form and lumbers forward anyway. It immediately gets impaled by the spikes, but doesn't appear to take any damage. It strains to keep moving forward, 
The spikes impale through its stomach and come out through its back. While the golem is impaled and temporarily slowed, I run up behind it. I jump up on a pile of pelts, parkour over the spikes, and land on the golem's back. I stab it with my knife. The golem cries out in pain, reaches back with one of its forearms, and grabs you. It throws you against one of the vault walls. You take a bunch of damage and are knocked prone. It looks at Darlene, smiles, and throws a clay boulder formed from its own skin. It connects with Darlene and nearly knocks them out. As the golem is distracted, I run up and two-hand cleave into its stomach with Darlene's staff. The giant golem cries out in pain. In three great hacks, Vir slices through its stomach, cleaving it in two. As half its body tumbles down, the items scatter in every direction and everything goes quiet. You take a moment, heaving to catch your breath. Clay is smeared across your skin where bruises and deep cuts have already formed. Everyone, except for Vera, is under half health. I immediately go over to where I saw Butterball get thrown and make sure he's okay. Butterball! Butterball yips and clamors out of the pile of items, back in his regular pug form. I lift my head from the ground where I was thrown. Yeah, yeah, check on the dog first. Don't worry about me. I come out of my rage. The tattoos start to dim, and my hair turns back into a regular mohawk. As Mushum Dawn starts to fade, disappearing back to the ancestral realm, I hug him, and we do our usual goodbye handshake, which ends with us clanging our axes together. Exe Maga, my grandchild. Ready to fight and protect you next time you call. With that, Muslim Dawn disappears in a flash of light. I look to Darlene and Mac and shrug. Well, that wasn't too bad. As you say that, you hear another rumble. The ground shakes so much you have to steady yourself. And as you look around, you see the now familiar sight of items starting to form and mash together. Then up from the ground, three more clay golems rise. Before you have a chance to respond, you hear Gungar yell from the top of the vault. His voice is unmistakable and fills the vault in echo. As you look up, you see a figure, small at first, then getting larger. As Gungar jumps from the door of the vault all the way down to the ground, he lands with a huge crunch in the middle of the three golems. He unsheaths his giant sword and in one swift motion cleaves through them all. Their bodies slump, dismembered. Gungar turns, wipes off his blade, sheaths it again, and looks over. You better have a great explanation for being in this sacred vault. And get talking fast before the sword finds its way through all of you as well. Gungar, we didn't break in. Well, we kind of did, but we were just following a lead. Look, there's a hole up there. I point to the top of the vault in the direction of the hole we came from. Gungar, with his incredible gift of sight, can see the hole you came from. A look of surprise and fear etches across his face. We didn't make that hole. We saw it from outside leading from the top of the canopy. We just followed it in. Gungar, you've known us for a really long time. You know our abilities and what we can do, and you know there's no way that we could have created that hole. I pull out the vial with the fungus. This is what did it. It's called the death fungus. I'm sure you've heard of it before. 
This is all up the wall leading to that hole, and on the outside of the tree. This is magic from somewhere else. What's worse, Cookham is missing their magical staff. That's why we came to see you earlier and asked all those questions. They asked us to come here and try and figure out what happened without raising any alarm. Gungar's face is impassive. But as he's considering you all, gongs and bells start going off from somewhere outside the vault. You triggered multiple alarms with this foolish venture. It's out of my hands now. Get out of here. I will talk to Cookham. But if I find out any of you are lying to me, there's no amount of history that can save you from what I'll do. You rush back up the mushrooms to the hole and out the way you came. Once back outside, you hurry back to Cookham's. As you quickly and quietly make your way back to Cookham's, the alarms continue to ring throughout the city. A tense and fearful energy fills the night of this canopy town. Everyone goes into their tree houses or shops, the streets completely emptying. They know these alarms mean trouble. When you get back to Cookham's, their tree house is silent and dark. You can tell right away that no one is home, but the door is unlocked and you let yourselves in. You all sit in the darkness and wait. After a while, the alarms go silent. Finally, Cookham walks through the door. They are draped in their nighttime cloak, their eyes hard and set. They sigh. Well, so much for not making a damn scene. Cookham, we're so sorry. We found a hole in the vault and we- I know, I know. I just came from Gungar's. He told me about the hole and the fungus and finding you three in the vault. I told him I sent you. That's not all. The death fungus formed into footprints next to these. I pull out the fishing hook and beaded necklace. Cookham grabs the items and inspects them, pacing the treehouse. This could mean that whoever took my staff was Blackfoot or Métis, or both. Or maybe it was more than one person. Or it could be someone who wants to pin the blame on them. Cookham nods and looks at their grandkids with pride. Without saying another word, they place a hand on a lion's mane mushroom by their door. It lights up the tiny mycelium network growing underneath. The light shoots away, disappearing, a message being sent off. The alarm has already reached the Treaty Nations, and they know something is wrong. I just sent a message that the vault has been breached and to return here as soon as possible. Since they're already halfway home, we have about five days before they return. Cookham places a hand over each one of you. That means you have five days to figure out how my missing staff is linked to all this. Five days to investigate before all the nations are back for the emergency meeting. Finding out what happened is essential to prevent blame, distrust, and internation fighting. Most importantly, so I can get my staff back. Cookham turns away, a look of worry spreading across their face. You only have five days. So what are you waiting for? Go! And that's where we'll end this session. You've just listened to our pilot episode of Cree and D, written by Jessica and Ben Johns. I'm Wes Harmon, the producer of this podcast and curator at Grant Gallery. 
I'm so damn stoked to present this show to you, performed by Jessica as Auntie Vera, Ben as the Dungeon Master and all accompanying voices, Emily Riddle as Auntie Darlene, and Matt Ward as Auntie Mac. Thank you so much for listening. We are recording on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional home and territory of the Nihiao, Cree, Diné, Anishinaabe, Soto, Nakoda Iska, Nakoda Sioux, and Nitsitapi, our Blackfoot peoples. We also acknowledge this as the Métis homeland. This radio play was recorded at Fava Studios with the much appreciated assistance and enthusiasm of Sam Brooks. This project is supported by Grant Gallery and is a part of an ongoing series of projects that have formerly gone under the moniker of Together Apart and is now known as These Ones. These Ones focuses on developing, presenting, and centering queer Indigenous projects. This is our first podcast, and we are grateful that it was made possible and generously supported by the BC Arts Council. Special thanks to Vanessa Kwan, who wrote a bulk of the grant, which I deeply appreciate, and to my colleagues at Grant Gallery, who've done so much to support me in these projects. Episode 2 will be underway at the time of release, but unfortunately, I can't promise when we'll have the next one ready. We are relying on grants to make sure that everyone involved with this production is paid well for their time and creativity, and so that we can offer you this podcast in as high quality as possible without advertisements. That being said, If there's anyone out there listening who's like totally loaded and would like to dump some money on us while letting us maintain full creative control, hit me up. And again, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep your eyes sharp for death fungus that might collapse your house. Listen to your cook'em and remember to take care of each other. Masicho. Well, we've made it this far. Oh my god! I forgot we added this! <laughs> I know! <laughs> I've never said no to a hole. <laughs> Why would Vera say that? Uh, I remember we were sitting and we thought it was... I remember because I was sitting there and I was like... I'm if living. we did a hole joke, it would be pretty funny here. I'm living. Okay, okay, okay. <clears throat>